if you're a real innovator, a big part of the skill set is how do you begin to bring other people along? What you don't do is just tell people, okay, here's the whole story. Right. Because then you're saying, take it or leave it. Here's my idea. But when you invite them to participate, when you leave it open-ended, when you ask it as a question instead of asserting as a statement, you open it up for them to add in. Welcome to Joy at Work. I'm your host, Alex Liu. Managing Partner and Chairman at Carney. This season on Joy at Work, we've talked to people who are driving innovation, using joy as their fuel and their foundation. Today, I'm welcoming Kirk Bresnicker. Kirk is an engineer with an impressive 33-year career at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. He is Chief Architect at Hewlett Packard Labs, the central research team of HPE. I invited Kirk to join me to talk about joy, innovation, sustainability, and what's coming next. So first, welcome, Kurt. Thanks so much for joining us here. Oh, and thank you for having me. It's a joy to be here. I'd love to hear, you know, what do you think about when you hear the term joy at work? For me, you know, what I've always wanted to make as an engineer is a difference. And so for me, joy at work is when what I think is unique about me in terms of my skills, capability, and experience find those other missing pieces. You know, famously, Dave Packard said, we come together as a company to do what we couldn't do as individuals, to make a contribution to our society. And he said, you know, I know it sounds trite, but it's true. And for me, that's what it is, is coming to work, bringing my authentic self, what I think is best about me, and knowing that's not enough, but at work, when I can find those other, those kindred spirits, when we can find, especially for an engineer, when you can find out what the problem is and they say, okay, well, I see what your problem. Let me help. Let me lean in. Let me try and help you so that we can solve this problem together so we can make that contribution. And that's when I really feel that fulfillment at work. So when my kids were little, they would ask, what do you do? And I think they like to go back for career day. And for my children, it's like, well, dad's an engineer and mom's a librarian. But as your kids get older, they start to not ask what, they pivot to why. And it's because they're starting their own process of discernment. So why do you do this? And that was a question my son, he was in high school and I picked him up at rugby practice. And so it's one of those quiet moments, you know, when you're with your teenager and he's exhausted and we're driving back home. And he asked me that question, why do you do what you do? And I kind of imagine that he was expecting me to say that, oh, I love technology. I love being clever. And, you know, I do enjoy both of those things. But my answer to him was, I am where I am because it's where I think that my skills and talents can provide the greatest return, where I can make my greatest contribution. And that's not only within my company, it's really overall. When I think of making a contribution for myself as an engineer to the greater good, I went through many different roles at Hewlett Packard and then Hewlett Packard Enterprise. And I finally settled in at labs because I had that ability to look over and see big pictures and see a little bit farther and then find those spots where there's a future vision and then oh, what can I do to make sure that this is going to happen? And 
you know, he was quiet for a little bit. And I says, Kyle, well, what do you want to do? Have you thought about yourself? And he said, you know, I think I want to be an economist. And I thought, okay, well, you know, that's interesting. Can you tell me why? And so I turned it back on him and his answer, which still floors me to this day. He says, you know, I'm learning that economics is the art and science of dealing with scarcity. And I think that my generation will have to deal with more profound scarcity than any in history. And I want to be ready to jump in. And now he's an economist with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers trying to help them to respond to all of the environmental crises and the hurricanes uh, that we're seeing visit on the East Coast of the United States, really leaning in. So he was able to really realize what he wanted to do. And when he said that, I said, you know, again, we're each of us trying to do that same thing, to know what we find really inspires us. And then it's about making that contribution. Well, I love that story about Kyle. But this notion of self-discovered inspiration, finding who you are, and that yields what you do is kind of a key point here, right? You know, when you look at the why question that Kyle asked you, it seemed to me that you were blending two points and they need to be blended, which is separating who you are versus what you do and then having that harmony. I still remember, I'm a big fan of the Top Gun movie, the latest one. And there's a scene in there where they're always picking on Maverick, where they're saying, you know, it's not what I am, it's who I am. I'm a naval aviator. I don't need to be a general or an admiral. I love what I'm doing and I'm doing what I love. That's all that I need. Now that brought us to, you talked a bit about your role at labs. Tell us a little bit more about what you do at labs and what is the focus there? Sure. Hewlett Packard Labs has been around, uh, it was founded in 1966. So me and labs, 1966. And uh, it was because Bill and Dave realized that they always needed a team that was looking out just over the brow of the hill to prepare technology and technologists to take on new challenges, to be prepared to find new markets, to improve their position in existing markets without having to always be worried about the next quarter. As we grew, it became more challenging because suddenly it wasn't just making instruments for other engineers. It was making computing systems for the world and then as the supply chain grew even bigger, it was making computer systems in partnership with all the component vendors, with all the software vendors, and for a global marketplace. And that meant the team at Labs had a harder job because they weren't necessarily just designing for the company, for HP's unique technologies. They really were part of a global supply chain. And so that's where I came into Labs as the chief architect. So, you know, my last job in the business group in the product development teams, I was the chief technology for the global server units. And that was a period where we would maybe look out one, two, at the farthest, maybe three years. We had the labs team that was looking at five, 10, 15, or 20 years, and that leaves this kind of gap in the middle. And that's where I decided to jump right into that uncomfortable middle space, not just doing the continuous evolutionary improvement of existing products, not doing that basic or even applied research that will form basic technologies, but how do we pull these things together things, technologies that are not quite ready, problems that are unsolvable with conventional approaches, and then begin to demonstrate solutions at scale. And so that's what I get to do on a daily basis. Well, I want to zero in a little bit more on this uncomfortable middle space because you mentioned that you're managing multiple horizons. There's the sort of really, truly next horizon, blue sky R&D, and then you have the sort of applied solutioning and engineering, and then there's this stuff in the middle. But how do you get people to do that? How do you actually orchestrate this middle complexity? 
if you really want to make a difference as a technologist, ingenuity is not enough for you to really make a difference. You need ingenuity. And the second thing you need is opportunity. You need a problem that has to be solved, that has a business outcome. And whether that is a business outcome in the sense of something that's a profitable market or it's a beneficial societal outcome, there has to be something where your ingenuity and that opportunity can meet. And the last piece you need is investment. You need to convince someone who can give you access to resources, whether that is financial resources, technology resources, human resources. How can you convince them that your ingenuity and this opportunity can meet with finite demands on resources and where reward outweighs the risk. So how can you have all of those things come together? And I guess that's the biggest part of my job is crafting and creating, curating that network of individuals so that they can find each other, so they can find the complementary piece, the engineer with the ingenuity, the business lead with the opportunity, and finally the leadership team that can make the investment. How can we get them all aligned all to see that potential. Well, it sounds like you connect a lot of dots and you're instinctively making people more intentional about what they need to do to see the bigger picture. So that's some of the leadership magic that I guess you have to apply, even in a huge and storied company like HPE. Probably your 33 years there has probably helped you in good stead. You can get think out of the domains, the silos, the functions, the horizons to help other people connect those dots. But a lot of what you're doing is really innovating within a structure of a pretty big, successful, huge, proud legacy company. How have you become that entrepreneur, I guess, <laughs> in an entrepreneurial company? I think part of the critical skill for a technologist, again, to make those connections, if you really have had that aha moment, it can be profoundly lonely because you could be quite literally the only one in the world who understands what you're talking about. And so a big part of the skill set is how do you begin to bring other people along? How do you have that conversation with the leadership team, with your fellow technologists? And for me, that's where it usually starts is popping your head over the cube wall or putting a message out in the Slack channel and saying, hey, does it ever bug you? Did you ever wonder if, have you ever noticed that dot, dot, dot? And then you, you begin to have that conversation. And I think, uh, you know, one of my HP fellows, Nick Dubay, we were just having this conversation and I love the way he put it is when you really want to have one of those conversations, what you don't do is just tell people, okay, here's the whole story. Because then you're saying, take it or leave it. Here's my idea. But when you invite them to participate, when you leave it open-ended, when you ask it as a question, instead of asserting as a statement, you open it up for them to add in, to begin to give you their opinions. I've heard many times that at HPE, would it make sense if, and you're just asking people, hey, you know, I just noticed this. Would it make sense if we did this? And the important thing is you're then inviting them. You're inviting them to share their wisdom, to share their experience. So many times in my career, I've had that aha moment. You have this technology breakthrough, and then you begin to have the conversation. You realize, oh, there are 10 business processes that would need to be modified in order for us to take advantage of the efficiency that I've just pointed out in this one narrow piece of technology. Technology. And that could happen, but it takes that concerted effort. So for me, having that ability to understand how you invite, how you evoke that creative response from your partners is a critical thing. And that leads to the question of, do you understand what drives and motivates a wide variety of team? What motivates that executive, that C-suite? It's going to be very different than what motivates the middle of the organization and what motivates the sort of grounds 
Thumbs Up technologist. Very different between all those. And if you really want to be successful, then you have to be ready to navigate. For me, it's always the hardest part to work through the middle of the organization. You guys can think what you want at the bottom or at the top, but I'm here to keep the lights on. I'm here for continuity. I'm here because we need to keep the business rolling. And that can be sometimes the most challenging part, to enable the middle of the organization to pivot. Because really what we're asking you to do is stop being successful at what was successful. Start being successful at what we will need to be successful in the future. And that's tough. But I think if you really have engaged the top and the bottom of the organization, if they are in alignment, then you can really punch through and harness that incredible productive capacity of the bulk of the organization and move them in a new direction. And that's such an excellent point about moving the middle because so many people in the middle can say no. Very few people can say yes. There's always reasons why you can't do it. And your emphasis on the soft skills, Kirk, how do you get people to be open and expansive and feel that it's not a zero-sum game to work on this versus that and we tried it before. Those are really great examples. Maybe switch topics now to this notion of the role of innovation and ethics. Obviously, innovation comes with a very major dose of responsibility. And, you know, your mission, the company's mission is to build things, make a difference that will be good for everyone. Another topic of concern these days to the broader world and community and labor force is that of innovation and sustainability. How are you and your group thinking about creating sustainable technology for this next generation of problems that we're trying to solve? So it's fascinating for me because some of my very first patents back in the late 90s were on this very topic about energy efficiency and sustainability. There wasn't necessarily that motivation from the leadership side, either public or private. And it has been amazing to me in really that last six months where all of these things are are sort of coming full circle. So it seems like all the pieces are finally coming together. And for me, there's sort of two areas that we are looking at. The first is how do we make the information technology itself more sustainable so that we can apply greater computational power for less energy so we can tackle harder problems? And second, as we look to the kind of very dynamic, constantly changing, but potentially vastly more sustainable public infrastructure how can we use IT to make those systems more sustainable? And I actually think for us, it is that second challenge. How do we make sustainable systems because we have sustainable IT? I think that's the greater potential. We will continue to squeeze out every picojoule of energy out of the computational system. But then what does that enable? How can we do both of those things simultaneously? Improve the sustainability of IT and improve sustainability with information technology. Picojoule is a word I haven't used in everyday conversation for quite some time. (laughs) But, But I mean, as I hear you describe the approach to these key issues, not easy problems. You've laid out some of the issues, the complexity, the interdependencies of this, but it's really reassuring actually to hear how you view technology and innovation helping solve these issues of sustainability. That certainly goes back to that conversation I was having with my son in the truck coming back from rugby practice, right? His generation will have to deal with profound scarcity. It's up for my generation to leave them the best possible way to explore those problems. That's great. One last question for you, Kirk. What most excites you about the future? 
So I think the thing that's really exciting to me right now, I've been working for several years with an amazing group of researchers, and this is a group of nine institutions all around Germany, and they're searching for the treatment and eventually the cure of Alzheimer's, as well as other neurodegenerative disease researchers. And if you're someone like me and the disease has affected you and your family, it's a fantastic opportunity to help out that team. But what's fascinating to me with them is the hallmark of how we having a conversation with science now that I think will then be the conversation we have with arts and engineering and enterprise tomorrow. But part of the challenge that they have is that they firmly believe that this is a interdisciplinary problem. You know, we won't stumble on one thing that says, okay, here's the disease. And part of the challenge and part of what we really want to understand is how do we break down those self-imposed barriers, those silos that says it's not just going to be about genetics. It's not just going to be about inflammatory medicine. It's just not about public health behaviors that we might want to incent, but it's really going to be between them all. And I asked the director, Dr. Nakatsura, he says, hey, you know, in 10 years when you guys are getting that Nobel Prize, when you've cracked the code, I want you during your acceptance speech to tell me how long has the answer been hiding in plain sight between the divisions that we have in the academy, between public and private, between science and industry, and how long have we been unable to see what is before us. And part of that, part of understanding that is how do we change the perception of the scientists, the researcher, the engineer, the artist, the leader across huge amounts of information and augment their ability to discover with AI, with simulation and modeling, with massive data analytics. And it's really that intersection of all three of those. Simulation modeling, advanced AI machine learning, advanced massive data analytics, all while solving for privacy, security, and sustainability sustainability. And we've had that first glimmer with them, and that is that we were helping them out with a specific genomics application, and they were convinced that this application was terminally optimized. It was never going to get faster than this. It was always going to take 20 minutes to do this analysis. And we actually brought some unconventional approaches to that problem. And in the matter of about five months, we got it running 100 times faster. So what was taking 20 minutes was now taking about 13 seconds. And that's already pretty good. And it also used 60% less energy to do the same calculation. And that's also laudable. But what really struck me was it changed the behavior of the researchers. Because if something takes 20 minutes, you sit there and you hit the go button, and then you probably walk away, you probably do some paperwork, you fill out your expense reports, and then in 20 minutes, you try and remember what you were thinking about. When it's near real time, when it takes that 10 seconds, you sit there and you watch that hourglass flip over 10 times. And as you're watching that hourglass flip over, you're still in the zone. You're still thinking about that next thing. And to see that change in the behavior of the researchers of what they can accomplish, that's the most exciting thing that we get to do is that ability to say, I want you to raise, raise what you think you can possibly admit in terms of data and calculations and being able to achieve those deep insights in a time that matters. Well, we can all feel your energy, your inspiration, and your optimism around the topic of applying innovation to our lives, our work, and our personal and human joy. So, Kirk, thanks so much for spending time with us. Really been a pleasure to hear from you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. And I'm excited to share that my new book, Joy Works, is coming this fall. I cannot wait to share this deeper exploration of joy at work with you. JoyWorks is available for pre-order now, wherever you buy books.
Joy at Work is produced by Carney, a global management consulting firm. We help our clients reach their full potential and find the way forward during uncertain times. We're inspired by Fast Forward, Carney's breakthrough business builder. Fast Forward works with leaders across the globe to inspire new business models that enhance stakeholder value and accelerate tech-enabled growth. Learn more about the show and about our innovative work at carney.com slash joy at work. And if you enjoyed this show, please check out the other shows in the Carney Podcast Network, including Inside the Mind. Carney's consumer practice leaders uncover how and why people shop today. What does our new consumer behavior mean for the future of the retail industry? And on Supply Chain Shocks, our operations partners explore how supply chains are transforming in order to meet new demands and constraints.